Hi, I'm Robin. And I'm Max. And welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. Before we get started with the interview with Alyssa Farrah Griffin, make sure you follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We also love hearing from you, so feel free to send a message to flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. We're so excited to welcome Alyssa Farrah Griffin, a Washington, D.C.-based political and communications advisor on Fly on the Wall today. She's currently a geopolitics fellow and formerly served as White House Communications Director under President Donald Trump, as well as Press Secretary to Vice President Mike Pence and Press Secretary for the United States Department of Defense. In fact, she was the youngest Pentagon Press Secretary in history. Can you believe it? She's got quite the resume, and we're so excited to share her experiences with you in our conversation today. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Alyssa. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for um, joining us today on Fly on the Wall. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. All right. So let's just kick it off, uh, starting with the beginning of your career. So when did you first realize you were conservative? And what did you love most about American conservatism when you first started um, your career in politics? And really, what drew you to the movement? It's a wonderful question. So uh, my my I, I guess I was first drawn to conservative politics um, in college. I, um, as many conservatives, started reading Ayn Rand and some of the kind of classic libertarian, um, you know, ideas about the role of government. And I was somebody who was always skeptical of big government and thought that the idea of limited government was something that I really valued. Um, to be honest, my uh, probably political ideology has evolved throughout my career. I consider myself still very much a conservative. Um, I have libertarian instincts on domestic politics, um, but I believe very strongly in a strong leadership role on the international stage stage, and having a strong national defense. Um, So yeah, I started my career right out of college. I mean, I interned on Capitol Hill during college. I was involved with college Republicans, which has kind of got me into activism. Um, but out of once I left college, I worked as Laura Ingram's producer for her radio show. So now sort of an infamous Fox News host. Um, she, I'll say this, it was an interesting experience. Um, I'm grateful she gave me the opportunity because it opened doors in terms of getting to know other people in the media, getting to know lawmakers on Capitol Hill that we were booking. Um, she's somebody who I would say I've ideologically broken with on, on many things since then, but I'm always be grateful that I got that experience right out of the gate. Um, did a number of other jobs and, you know, conservative movement roles um, before ultimately ending up on Capitol Hill. Um, and there I uh, started by working for Congressman Mark Meadows, who then represented North Carolina's 11th district. Um, and it was really a, a fascinating point in my career of getting to see the, the levers of government and how they work firsthand. And I always tell anyone, I'd say this to you know, students listening, if you get an opportunity to intern on Capitol Hill or to work on it, you absolutely should. Um, but back more broadly toward just like what drew me to American conservatism is um, I believe in American exceptionalism. I believe that there is a role that we play in around the globe that matters. And I believe um, having traveled to more than two dozen countries with, and my role later with Vice President Pence and also with the Department of Defense, I've seen firsthand how other nations look to the US for leadership. Um, but that also comes with responsibility. It means that we have to live up to the values that others are seeking from us. So, you know, everything from human rights to uh, standing up for democracy. 
um, and my my lecture series or my discussion group, I should say, um, is is focused on threats to democracy in the midst of the MAGA movement. Great. And something you mentioned during uh, that last answer was about your time with Representative Mark Meadows. Um, we know you were on the ground floor with him at the beginning of the Freedom Caucus's rise to prominence. And what excited you most about the movement? It's a great question. So um, that was a really interesting time in Congress. It was around uh, 2014. It was a midterm cycle coming off of the, the Tea Party wave in 2010. There were a lot of young, energized um, conservative members in the House and in the Senate. And I think um, what led to the forming of the Freedom Caucus were really two things. It was these members who felt like they were elected by their constituents at home who felt like Washington wasn't representing them. And so they, we kind of existed to pull Republican leadership a little closer to where the base of the party was. And then the other side of it was about, at that time, the Freedom Caucus was really focused on reforming how the House of Representatives worked. So there was this um, this growing sense in the Republican conference that things had become too top-down. It had been an old boys club of really just the leadership made the decisions. They decided what bills were on the floor, what amendments got votes. Um, and for, for these, you know, the, the, the members of the caucus, they felt like, well, I'm not representing my constituents properly if I don't have an equal say in the legislation we're considering. So for me, I, I very much ideologically agreed with the early um, you know, version of the Freedom Caucus. Um, and I think that some of what they did was, was really important. And at that time, it looked very different than it does today. Um, it had very libertarian members like Justin Amash from Michigan, uh, Mark Sanford. Then you had more traditional um, conservative types like a Jim Jordan. You had some real neoconservatives who believed in, you know, really strong national defense. And we'd have riveting debates um, from kind of all corners of the conservative spectrum. Um, and I think um, worked to advance policy that we thought was representative of where the people who elected those members wanted them to be. Yeah, definitely. So going off of that, how do you think, or in your view, how did the Freedom Caucus really shape the Republican Party that we see today, um, especially with the rise of um, Donald Trump? It's, a, it's an interesting and a tough question. It's something that I kind of grapple with pretty, pretty frequently because, you know, as I said, I really believed in the, the early mission and a lot of the, the policy battles that we had back in those earlier days. Um, but when I look at the Freedom Caucus today, I don't recognize it. Um, what was kind of an anti-establishment, challenge your leadership, challenge your own party structures, and be the voice that's, you know, in tuned with the constituents you represent, has now sort of morphed into like an extension of the former president and is seems more focused on defending him, um, you know, pushing his priorities than it is on any really overarching values that I can perceive. Um, I don't want to speak too broadly because there are still members um, who, of the Freedom Caucus who I like and respect, but it definitely I'll put it this way. My old friend Justin Amash doesn't recognize it, and um, there's a reason he, you know, stopped being a member of the caucus. Um, but I think that the broader question about the Republican Party where it is today is um, I think most of us saw the rise of, you know, what we call the Tea Party movement in 2010 era as um, the conservative movement really gaining steam and power. And we saw people come into office like Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, the 
the you know fighters many of what who went on to run for president but i think that we thought that this was an answer of you know conservatism is becoming more popular and our base is requiring that we go more that direction i think what we may have misread was this is much more of a populist movement that doesn't fit into the broad strokes of what the Republican Party more traditionally has, has stood for. Um, you know, even today when I look at, because um, I've, as, as you guys know, but listeners may not, you know, I I broke with former President Trump after January 6th, and I, I continue to over a number of policy areas. And one of, you know, an, some of the big ones are the fact that we used to look at conservatism as sort of the three-legged stool. So it was the social issues, the family value side of things, the limited government, and then the strong national defense. And now, really in the Trump era, it seems like the only leg that's still standing is the social issue side of things. Um, you know, you hear very protectionist, non-interventionist language coming from him um, and some of the most popular figures on the right. Um, so it's particularly stark right now with the situation with Ukraine and Russia. Um, you know, even hearing outsized Republican figures like Tucker Carlson saying things like, why wouldn't we, you know, defend Russia um, as opposed, you know, why do why should we be supporting Ukraine over Russia and why shouldn't we let Russia invade Ukraine? Things that would be um, just foreboded in a t another era of the Republican Party. So I think there's a bit of an identity crisis. Um, and I think that I can't put all the, you know, I, I, if blame is the right word, I can't put it all on, you know, Trump for taking things a certain direction. I think that my party also in this era where the Tea Party and what became a populist movement was coming up, um, many in the leadership of the Republican Party didn't recognize that this was really driven by working Americans who felt marginalized and forgotten in the country and felt like, you know, those in power and the elites were benefiting from Republican policies, but were leaving the average worker behind. Um, many of us were seen as, you know, corporate shills and globalists who were trying to help the biggest corporations, but not the, you know, mom pop worker. And that was, um, well, I don't think accurate of our policies. It was widely perceived and we lost that perception battle. And that's something we have to come back and, and show we are, we are pro business, large and small. We are a pro worker party. Um, but that's something that I think is a big uphill battle to, to communicate. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that last answer. Um, so we know you resigned from your position in the Trump administration on December 4th, 2020. Can you tell us a little bit about that day and what led to your decision? So I served with Vice President Pence as his press secretary from uh, September 2017 to September 2019. Then I went on to be the United States Department of Defense press secretary for about a year. Um, when COVID hit, I was asked to go to the White House to be the White House communications director under Donald Trump. So I served in that role for about eight months um, through the election cycle. Um, and then we lost the election. News flashed to Donald Trump. He lost the election. Um, and I resigned a few weeks after the election was um, called on December 4th. And um, the, the reason I did simply was that, that there were starting to be these discussions around it was stolen. There were legal challenges happening in states. And I thought it was very destructive. Um, and I wanted to, at minimum, lead by example um, to my staff and to others. Um, like, look, we lost. It's time to move on to do it gracefully. Like a peaceful transition of power is in intrinsic to a, a democracy. Um, so yeah, I stepped down December 4th and went on to advise the, the Georgia Senate runoffs for um, the next month. Yeah, so um, speaking of a peaceful transition of power, we saw that the 2020 election cycle really did challenge that. 
um, January 6th is really a day that we all remember. So what was your experience like watching those events unfold? And what subsequent debates about those events did you have um, after it all went down? It's oh, a great question. So um, I had I had resigned from my role just over a month prior, and I, um, as I mentioned, was advising the Georgia Senate runoffs, and I was actually living in Florida just temporarily, um, spending some time away from D.C. And um, I I knew that it would January sixth would be a challenging day. I never could imagine it would become a violent day and what it was. Um, but I, I, I kept in touch with Pence World. I'd, I'd, I'd worked with him closely and was close with many people in his office in the days leading up to it. And I had a sense that he was getting real pressure to you know, do the unthinkable, um, break the constitution and try to throw out the electors. I knew he would never do that. Um, he, is, he is an institutionalist and he is a constitutionalist. Um, but I just knew it was going to be a hard day for him. Um, being up at that podium and having some of the performative politicians like Ted Cruz, who know better, um, you know, challenging the results and saying we, we need to throw them back to the states. Um, but I so I watched from Florida and as as things started to, you know, we start getting word that, you know, Cannon office is being evacuated. The protest looks like it's growing. I start talking to friends in the Capitol, members of Congress, um, reporters, journalists who I worked with for many years, and people were fearing for their lives. I mean, we all saw it. You know, the Georgetown campus, you guys aren't all that far away from it. Um, and, and people were pleading with me, like, if you can get to the president, you know, can anyone? So I, um, I've shared this before publicly, but I called through, it's called Signal, but it's basically a line that you can use to call the president. And I tried to reach him that way, didn't get through to him. Um, reached out to Mark Meadows, White House Chief of Staff, and my former boss, and you know, someone who was a longtime mentor to me, and didn't get through by phone, but I eventually texted him, you have to condemn this. Um, if the president won't, you should go to the sticks, go to the cameras at the White House and say, stand down. This is not who we are. If you don't, people will die. Um, and sure enough, within you know an hour of sending that text message, Ashley Babbitt had been shot. And then later, we learned that um, another police officer, Brian Sicknick, was killed. Um, and since then, by the way, I'd remind folks, um, several other Capitol Police and Metropolitan Police officers lost their lives to suicide in the aftermath. Um, so it's it was it was worse than just what happened that day. Um, all that said, I was I was heartbroken that day, but also radicalized for the idea that like I would use my voice in any way that I could to denounce the former president going forward, to denounce what led up to that day, and to try to educate people on my side as to why this is so destructive to who we are and to everything we believe in. Um, so without really th even thinking through the consequences, I went on the cable news shows the next morning did CNN, Fox News, and NBC, and, and, and just roundly denounced it and called for his resignation, said I would support, um, you know, invoking uh, Article, I'm sorry, is it the 25th Amendment um, to have the cabinet replace him. And I didn't think about it at that time, like, who's going to join me in this? But I assumed others would. <laughs> And a few did, like Secretary Chow resigned, Secretary DeVos did. There were some strong condemnations, a few other staffers left. Um, but I was very disappointed to see how so quickly, within a few weeks, he was basically normalized again by the Republican Party, and he's now more powerful than I think he ever was. Um, so while I, I want to, you know, in my discussion group, I think we always need to remember that day, and it's nothing we can uh, ever lose sight of, but we need to look forward and realize that could happen again, but worse. Um, I actually think we're on track for it to happen again, but worse. 
if we don't start having real conversations about what the democratic process looks like and upholding it. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that um, day. And so just going off of that, how do you think that day has affected your relationship with the Republican Party and the people in it? Um, it's, you know, it's presented a challenge. Um, I, you know, um, right after speaking out against the former president, I knew that some bridges would be burned just automatically there. Um, you know, loyalists around him, a lot of them condemned me for it. Uh, the former president actually put out a screed attacking me when I was leaving for my honeymoon. Um, <laughs> but, um, I also hear from a lot of members of Congress and, uh, Republican Party officials who privately will tell me, like, we're with you. I agree with what you're saying and what you're doing. Um, I've also been really, um, really grateful to have leadership of people like Congressman Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, who have both reached out to me on different occasions and who I have relationships with, who are doing the right thing at, for no personal gain. Like, Kinzinger's, you know, not even running for re-election as seats being drawn out. I hope he has a tremendous future in our party because he's doing the right thing and his voice resonates. And Congresswoman Cheney, I hope she wins her seat, but she very well may lose it. Um, and we need more politicians who do the right thing even when it may mean you lose everything. Um, that said, I do think that there's a lot of folks who are where I am with regard to the former president. There just aren't as many willing to say it publicly. Um, so I'm hoping for some uh, courage to arise in those folks in, in the coming months ahead where or he will be our nominee. And that's that's not what the country needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for that really insightful answer. And uh, shifting to a different topic now, uh, what was it, what's it like to work at CNN, even as someone who primarily associates with the right? And what's like the culture there? So I have been extremely pleasantly surprised by how much I like CNN. Um, I, you know, coming from the White House side and even when I was with Pence, I was one of my many roles was being responsible for, for booking White House officials. And CNN was always, we were sort of like went at it with each other because, you know, they'd want certain guests. I wouldn't want them to go on because they were going to get pitted against the president or the vice president. So it was sort of a, a tense relationship. But I actually, in it, built a couple good friendships that, um, that sort of spanned, um, you know, maybe political conflicts. And one person who has been really instrumental in in my time getting um, at CNN, but also val valuable to me when I was at the White House is Jake Tapper, um, host of The Lead and State of the Union. And he's somebody who is an old school journalist where like he calls balls and strikes. He's, I couldn't tell you what his partisan leanings are. Like I think there's a sense that CNN le leans left of center, but um, I find that he covers things very fairly. And he, he's just been a very decent person and I think been um, helpful to me, you know, navigating the culture of CNN. I like it. I think that they've um, they recently actually brought on one of our fellow fellows, uh, Kristen Soltis Anderson, as a contributor, who's also a longtime Republican. I think they see the value in uh, in investing in different viewpoints. Um, I've never felt like you know I've always felt empowered to say what I truly believe, um, and I feel like I've gotten a fair shake from all the hosts I've appeared with, which is nice and. To be honest, as somebody who I did a lot of, you know, right wing media before joining CNN, I actually feel more comfortable using my voice at CNN because I can authentically say what I actually believe. Whereas on the right, you actually are kind of competing to be like to outright wing the other person to get the soundbite and to be more interesting. And 
at this point in my career, I've done a lot. I'm not interested in playing that game. I just want to say what I actually believe. Yeah, definitely. I think that's so important. And so, you know, speaking of including varying viewpoints, you previously previously commented on the divide in the political conversation. So how can we bridge that as Americans in such a polarized environment? Where should we start? So this is something I'm passionate about. And after um, after I left the White House, I made a conscious effort to engage. I've always had friends, as many friends who are Democrats as Republicans. My best friend and maid of honor, matron of honor, um, is a Democrat. So in my private life, I've never found that to be much of a challenge. But I wanted to actively seek out democratic friendships in in my professional life so um i i started working with speaking with writing with um a woman johanna maska who was an obama alum and i um served as his director of press advance and she and i just you know together want to make conversations like us talking about our shared experiences as women and high levels in the white house um but who have different political viewpoints make that more common um, and I think this all like begins with individuals and with relationships. Um, like social media isn't real life. Um, online, like we exist behind an avatar to fight with the other side. But in real life, I almost always find that I can find common ground with someone, even if we're on polar opposite ends of the political spectrum. And um, you know, last semester, you guys had Charlotte Clymer as a fellow, and um, she, I got to meet her during my interview process and we, we've kept in touch since and it's probably nobody more like politically different than me than Charlotte Clymer but I respect her I like her and I genuinely just find her enjoyable to talk to and that should be more normal so I'm just hoping that like you know even in our discussion groups which um, do have Republican attendees liberal Democrat attendees and then you know the unidentified I hope that that's a good starting point of just what political discourse should look like. The um, and one one final thing on that, I think the one of the best lines from uh, President Biden's inauguration speech was something along the lines of, "Not every disagreement has to become a war. You know, not everything has to become a fight to the death over, um, you know, one side or the other." And 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 he's right. Like there are fundamental things that we are always going to disagree on, but like let's see let's find the areas of common ground or at least like mutual respect of the other person's viewpoint yeah for sure and looking ahead at the midterms where do you see the gop winning on the issues in 2022 so well 2022 should be looked at from the lens um as most midterm cycles of it really just it has to do with the congressional map um all like the republicans are going to take back the house short of like something dramatic uh shaking that up i don't know that it's because they've done anything particularly like incredible the last year to garner that support it's simply where just the trend lines are um it doesn't help however that i think inflation being on the rise and gas prices rising those are kind of the pocketbook issues that i think motivate voters um significantly um, what's going to be more interesting to me will be watching the Senate and the governor's races. So the Senate is a much, that's a much tighter race for who's going to control it. Um, and I think, you know, if it were up to Leader McConnell, um, you know, to Rick Scott, who heads up the NRSC, um, the, the, the focus would be on the economic policies. Um, and I think that's a, a valuable pitch to make in these races. What I hope doesn't happen is you see, you know, whether it's Wisconsin, Missouri, um, some of these places we stand to to, to win seats um, that they focus on things. Uh, Pennsylvania will be an interesting one as well. That they're focusing on things like relitigating the previous election or even getting into conspiracy theories about future elections. So 
we Republicans tend to win when we have a cogent economic message and we can tell the American people why it will be better under us. Um, and that's really where I think the focus should be. Yeah, it's crazy how close the midterms are. And my own senator is up for re-election um, in North Carolina, so I, I'll definitely be watching closely as well. Um, so what can Republicans learn from Democrats in today's politics? And what should Democrats be learning from Republicans? Ooh, I love that question. So I think um, Democrats tend to be better messengers, messengers and branders of what they're for. Um, sure, they attack Republicans and Republicans attack Democrats, but I think that I could generally find what, you know, it's easier to just define what Democrats believe in right now and like what they're, I think they did it very effectively in the 2020 cycle, what they were for, what they were against. Um, they've also been better about not um, interfighting um, with limited cases. I've, I've, I've condemned, I think that the Biden administration as well as Senate leadership has been wrong to really demonize Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema. But for the most part, they hash out their issues um, constructively and privately. Um, I may sound like a hypocrite saying that since I criticize my own party, but hey, I'm not an elected official. <laughs> um, what I think Democrats could learn from Republicans um, is I think that what I think one of the most damaging trends I'm seeing with the left is this kind of careening toward cancel culture. Um, there is a ton that our country has to make up for, learn from, we need to progress on as a society. Um, but I, I've, I've explained it this way before, and hopefully the Georgetown audience will appreciate this. All the major religions of the, war, um, of the world have the general theme of redemption built into their ideology because it's a fundamental like human value that I think we believe in, which is that we are flawed men and women, but we are also worthy of um, forgiveness. Um, we are capable of change and of bettering ourselves and being redeemed. No one is irredeemable. And um, I think built into this kind of like culture of cancel culture is the notion that like people should just be completely written off for having done the wrong thing or said the wrong thing or something that's, you know, seen as, um, you know, not not right in this moment. I think that's something that actually could be very damaging for for progressives and that they should consider um, maybe changing their approach to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of good advice. And uh, now we're going to shift into something called the lightning round. Um, just much quicker questions with really quick answers. And um, the first question I have for you is, what advice would you give to someone who's interested in being an on-screen talent like yourself, where a lot of Georgetown students come here expecting to work in like policy long-term or politics, but we don't have a huge journalism program? Um, excellent question. So I would say focus on the substance. I feel very strongly as um, a political pundit that I don't believe in people being professional opinion havers. I think if you deserve to be on TV, it's because you have some sort of expertise or background that warrants you being there. Um, so I think of Elliot Williams, you know, my fellow fe fellow who's, you know, a longtime lawyer, former assistant attorney general and somebody who brings excellent perspective to the screen. Kristen Solti Sanderson is a pollster. You know, I've served in three roles, senior roles in, in administration. So I'd say get the experience and expertise and then um, and I think once you have that, the confidence to be able to like deliver and perform on TV comes kind of naturally. Um, I'm sure I can improve my performances, but I feel like as long as you know, like you're confident in what you're talking about, you're generally going to be good. 
All right, our next question is a little bit of just an ad moment. So your geopolitics discussion group is titled The Future of America's Democracy in the Midst of the MAGA Movement. So give us a 30 second spiel of what it's about and what students should expect from it. So my discussion group tackles the kind of existential threats to our democracy right now um, in the rise of the MAGA populist movement under President Trump. It's about one part looking backward, how did we get here, the rise of disinformation, um, the role our social media and our politicians have played in amplifying the big lie. Um, it's about one third, um, what can we do to be active participants and um, in building our democracy and in building up our institutions so that they work. And then looking forward, how do we make sure this never happens again? Um, the thing that I always tell people with my discussion group is um, more so than any of the other ones this semester, I will tell you I do not have all the answers. Um, I don't even have half the answers. So this is truly about us coming together to talk through this very real threat, um, to analyze it, and to hear from each other and learn from each other on what we could do better. Mm -hmm. That sounds really interesting. And our final question is very random, but what is your favorite national park? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, okay, I live in I live in Georgetown, actually local to campus. Uh, I love to run Teddy Roosevelt Island. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's probably, okay, to be honest, it's probably not my favorite in the country, but that's the first <laughs> one that came to mind. Yeah. I just, I love it. I think they could do a little bit more to preserve it. Um, but it's beautiful. And students, if you haven't, go check it out because it's amazing. Um, but there's so many. If I, my goal would be um, at some point, I would love to do like a, you know, cross country tour of a bunch of national parks. My husband did it when he was young and it was like his favorite vacation of all time. That sounds incredible. I hope he'll be able to take you again. So <laughs> yes. thank you so much for joining us for Fly in the Wall. We really enjoyed this conversation with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. If you want to hear more from Alyssa Farah Griffin, make sure you register for her GU Politics Discussion Group, The Future of American Democracy in the Midst of the MAGA Movement, on Tuesdays from 4 to 5 p.m. Make sure to check out the GU Politics newsletter for the sign-up link or Google GU Politics Discussion Group. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you follow us on social media at flyonthewallpod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. As always, you can email us at flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. See you next week.